Hey there, you're listening to the Water and Music Podcast. My name is Sherry Hu, and I'm a freelance writer focused on how technology is transforming music and culture. In this podcast, we unpack the fine prints behind big ideas at the intersection of music and tech, featuring a curated slate of young innovators, leaders, artists, and thinkers from across the music business. Today's guests are Eugene Khan and Sharice Poon. Eugene is based in Hong Kong and is a co-founder of Makin, a multimedia platform highlighting emerging cultural trends on an international scale, including but not limited to fashion, art, design, music, and tech. Before that, he was a managing editor and editorial director at Hypebeast. Sharice is currently pursuing her master's degree in design expanded practice in London and is also a frequent writer, editor, and producer for Makin. The two of them co-host the weekly cultural criticism podcast, Making It Up, and the conversation you're about to hear stems from an in-depth essay that they wrote in February 2019 with three other writers called The Modern Creator's Paradigm, A Reason for More Critique and Accountability. I'll link to the article in the show notes, but in summary, Eugene and Charisse wrote about how not only are creators incentivized to create just for the sake of creating and to flood the market and essentially overproduce, but also that leaves consumers, everyday people, including you and me, disincentivized to think critically about how we're actually consuming this work. And that's potentially endangering the value of culture and the amount of energy we invest in really furthering and innovating on culture as a whole. I really wanted to invite the two of them to chat on this podcast because it ties to so many trends in the music industry and especially concerns from artists in terms of how to stand out from the sheer volume of content being released on streaming platforms today how modern-day internet celebrities like Blinaz X gain prominence from meme culture, and how media platforms, including but not limited to Spotify, have a significant burden of responsibility in terms of the quality of what they curate for their massive audiences. We address all of these topics and more in what has amounted to the longest interview I've done on this podcast to date, but one that I think will leave you viewing culture and creativity in a totally refreshed and different way from right now. So let's dive in. I'm here with Eugene and Sharice. Thank you both so much for joining this podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having us. I'm super excited to talk about this essay that you both worked on, The Modern Creator's Paradigm. And actually, the first thing that I want to try to do, given that there are so many different themes that you touch upon in the essay, is to try to summarize it in a couple sentences and see if I'm getting it correctly. And if there's anything that like you think I should add or that you think I'm missing, you can kind of like sure. get feedback. Okay, so... Yeah, so from my understanding, you're saying that the modern economy and modern technology is incentivizing creators, so that can be like musicians, visual artists, photographers, etc., to favor overproduction and favor flooding the market and creating just for the sake of creating without any sense of purpose, to the point where there's no sense of creative accountability anymore. And then you're arguing that that's having a net negative impact on culture and that we need to do something about it. Am I understanding that correctly? It's partially correct. The one way that we were looking at it, or I guess, you know, the the initial thesis behind it was looking at everything being created right now was, are we as consumers, and this is probably a part that, that's up for debate, is like, are we as consumers sufficiently challenging stuff that's being put out there? Is it our role to challenge it? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that it's not necessarily that 
the platforms and whatnot are favoring overproduction. It's more so that we're allowing it to happen as consumers because I guess we're voting with our attention. We're voting with our dollars. So I don't think your definition is necessarily incorrect, but the way that we had had proposed and the way we were looking at it was more from that context. Because I think ultimately as people that are putting stuff out there, it's there doesn't seem to be a, a particular check that's going on. It's more that in the democratic landscape that is the internet today, it's like, hey, you can put out whatever you want and it has a place to live. But now I'm starting to think, and this is sort of my internal struggle too, is like, I really appreciate the democratic nature of the internet. But then on the flip side, we've kind of allowed it to kind of just exist. And now we're kind of taking stock of what's happened. Mm. I would say though, that even though we do kind of highlight the role of the individual person in contributing to culture that we also do mention media. We don't so much talk about platforms in the sense that maybe Sherry, you would be um, interested in discussing, but we do talk about media and it's, um, responsibility as well, such as media platforms like Macon. So it's not just an individual responsibility, I think, that is mentioned in the essay, but I think it is the individual responsibility that is, like, as Eugene mentioned, like slightly controversial. Yet yeah, to just touch upon and expand on the consumer's responsibility or kind of their involvement in this, yeah, I feel like in music and in tech in general, you do hear this mantra all the time, like the, the, the consumer always wins, like always listen to the consumer. They have the last word. I like hear that time and time again. And that kind of dictates all business decisions at like a major record label or an artist management company. So so you're, are you saying that going blindly with that mentality without thinking more critically from the consumer standpoint, that's like leading to all these issues? Yeah, I would say definitely that it's a, a two-sided street and that both sides probably have to play a more significant role. And that to me is like sort of the the push pull. Like I'm, you know, just to preface, like sometimes I'm I think about this concept and I'm I'm really curious whose responsibility it it is to to allow this to happen. And I mean maybe that's kind of a strong way of putting it, but like as in how it's happening, it's it's really along the lines of whoever's putting the stuff out there, who's consuming it, how do we drive forward as a culture to to create more meaningful experiences? And to also maximize, and this is maybe the the part that's a little bit weird, is like maximizing efficiency in a way that we have limited resources on this planet. And especially, we initially took this from the context of fashion. Like, um, Sharice and I both previously worked at Hypebeast, so we kind of know what that whole world of consumerism looks like. That sort of like endless product release cycle Obviously, there's a lack of sustainability around that. And it's not that we're inherently anti-consumerism. We still like product. We just felt there's so much stuff being put out there that ultimately something has to change. And it's like, who's going to make the change? And Mm. maybe it's just by virtue of having this cycle that we sort of laid out, maybe it's very difficult to change because every player has a role to play within it all. And it's who's going to kind of take a stand and be like, hey, you know what, like, I think that in actuality, I, there's something I can do here to, to shift things in a different direction. Well, when I think about the music angle, the sustainability issue doesn't take as much concern because music can be just digital, You don't have, which has consumption related to it. It does, electricity, etc. 
but not in the severely dangerous way that fashion does. And when I think about the consumer always wins in the context of music platforms, I think about, well, the consumer's choice is out of the choices that you present to them, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I wish I could think of a better music analogy, but I'm going to go with Netflix anyway. Mm-hmm. So like what Netflix presents to me in their catalog is what I can pick from. So maybe I don't pick things with a diverse cast because that's not even present in the catalog. And so that would just be like a reinforcing situation. And it would appear that way to the platform that I'm just constantly picking like really bland one-sided casting choices. And they would be like, okay, let's keep producing Netflix originals that look like this because it doesn't look like the consumer is picking diversity anyway. Mm. Yeah, I think Netflix is totally appropriate because I, I think music and just any video platform is taking on the burden of responsibility of curation, given how much influence they have now. Like when Spotify at least first launched in the US, I think up until even just last year or two years ago, they were very adamantly saying that they weren't gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. They're like, we hate gatekeepers. We're trying to, uh, they didn't say bypass, but kind of like disrupt the whole major label driven ecosystem, um, democratize the way curation works. But now they're very much, they've, kind of like embraced their status as gatekeepers now. And there's a lot more responsibility and scrutiny kind of as a result of that. There's a writer named Liz Pelly who's written a lot about streaming from more critical lens. And she's done a lot of interesting studies of the gender breakdown on streaming playlists, like on country playlists and hip hop playlists. And Spotify is constantly talking about the benefits of diversity and their commitment to diversity. But then if you look at what they're promoting on their homepage or like the makeup of a lot of their most popular playlists, millions of followers, it's still like 60 to 80% men who are like, at least like the primary artists featured. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, there's going to be more and more scrutiny around that, which, yeah, I think is is totally a good thing. Yeah. I think that in, in the context of Spotify, especially Anything that has a, a massive swath of data, like you kind of need a way to organize it and disseminate it and make sure it's properly consumed, right? And I think that's the kind of thing that we're, any which way you look at it, there there has to be a solution. And obviously for much of tech and anything with a lot of data, it's like algorithmically driven with its own baked in biases that we'll never really be able to see under the hood. Mm, so mm-hmm. the thing that, that really interests me about this whole creative paradigm and even the stuff that you'd want to talk about today is like some of it is fundamentally driven by business models as well. Right. Like totally. I think even then Spotify itself is probably a little bit better off because it has uh, a balance of both ad driven and subscription driven revenue, but not everyone else has that sort of ability. And even though making itself doesn't run ads, making as a publication doesn't run ads. We also have to think about, Currently, how we're set up is the content is essentially all free, like 99% free, for, except for some things. But in general, mm-hmm. like I'm always at this sort of internal struggle between, you know, the openness and sharing of knowledge versus, you know, keeping some things behind a, a paywall. Because obviously, knowledge and, and critical thought and analysis are things you want to share and disseminate. But then also at the same time, how do you continue on? How do you keep the lights on? So I don't, I don't think I necessarily have an answer to that. And Media is still an, a component of 
the underlying sort of paradigm in that whole cycle. I'm not sure, like people might be listening, they might not have seen the the chart that that Charisse or the flow chart that Charisse had put together, but it's pretty complex. And like knowing which part is the first part to attack to change, I don't even know where to start with that. Something I wanted to pick up that Eugene you said was the thing about things being algorithmically driven and i was wondering if platforms need like spotify because we're talking about music mainly right um like spotify need to purposely inject things that people might dislike into the things that they're listening to like that's such an interesting question yeah our piece is about moving culture forwards right in order to make sure that like as a platform, you have some responsibility for moving culture forwards. I feel like you have to intentionally shift people out of the ruts that they're predisposed to. But obviously that comes at a risk, right? For the platform, because it's like a risk of them, of the listener not understanding why you're doing that and feeling like taken aback by it. But ultimately it could be for a greater good Yeah. where people get put onto things that they actually do like and that aren't were not things that they would have discovered on their own or even knew existed. Yeah. I was thinking about this as well, is that obviously Spotify's intentions are to keep you engaged, but in general, as, as consumers, right, there's, there's different ways for us to consume a product or the reason why we'd want to consume a product is partially out of convenience, emotional resonance. And the emotional side is, is, arguably the more interesting one because i think spotify already answers the convenience problem by just having a massive catalog right but how do you create opportunities where spotify can actually be a little bit more experimental and they've communicated hey this is a playground for things that are by no means popular but you know they're they're suggested for whatever reason like this guy's a great story this artist um she came from this place and now she's doing this and Beyond that, I think the the one thing that I find most interesting in terms of breaking through is the word of mouth element has been increasingly strong for me. Like how many times you've been on Netflix scrolling for 15 minutes and then it pops in your mind, oh, my friend recommended this and I trust their yeah, opinion. Yeah. And I think that that ultimately newsletters have proven to be successful for that because while it's a topic we all agree upon, we all come from different walks of life and we're able to actually introduce different points of view. And I think that maybe that is in part some of the things that we want to address with all the things we set out to do is, you know, it's it's not about necessarily being right. It's about having other things put in front of you that you can critically dissect and understand if you want if you want to, you know, consume this or not or you want to listen to this or not. And that to me is maybe the initial sort of starting point into getting somewhere versus just being presented stuff endlessly and then you're just like hey you know what that's all there is yeah it's so funny sherry and i actually talked about this over dinner and we talked about that exact same thing about how regardless of how good the algorithms get on spotify or netflix etc nothing is more persuasive than someone in person telling you oh you need to listen to this or you need to watch this which makes me think like oh are we just really old school yeah so I think I like just made this connection now so a lot of it's like speaking of accountability I think just comes down to knowing why so like yeah Spotify is like feeding Spotify Netflix are feeding all these recommendations to you without saying why the users discover weekly playlists are updated every week and but there isn't any reasoning behind it. And so just like my experience going through the playlist is like, 
oh, I could maybe see why they recommend this song to me, but just the retention has been um, so low, maybe because that why just, like, isn't really there. And, like, I, I'm very well aware that, for sure, to improve the recommendations, Spotify, like, has a taste profile of every user. So they're, like, constantly iterating on that why, just not communicating it. So there's, like, a sense of creative accountability, but also algorithmic accountability, which I feel like is becoming a more and more important topic. Not only is it not clear, not only is it not clear why they're recommending you something, but I think the regular consumer's assumption is that they're recommending you content based off of the content that you consumed. And that is a very uninteresting preposition to me. Mm, and mm-hmm. I think to Eugene as well, to just be constantly offered things that are similar to what you have already listened or watched puts a lot of onus on you and you have to do all of the hard work of like research and what if your tastes you know really haven't developed since you were 15 Mm, or 16 mm -hmm. and therefore you just get like I listened to Blink 182 when I was a teenager Mm -hmm. right so like god forbid I just listened to that and therefore my music streaming platforms will forever recommend me similar artists you know I guess where I'm going with this is that there has to be something that is platform related that tries to push you away from just furthering what you have the initiative to explore on your own. I think in part, some of that will come down with just greater education and understanding around how technology works. I think we're still so very new in terms of how the pipes of the internet work and how the backend is, is working in terms of, organizing all the information that at some point like i think increasingly like what is an algorithm and how does it influence my life i think that will hopefully sort of reveal itself and people like yeah you know what it is it's true it's pretty boring if everyone's if everyone's serving me stuff that ultimately they think i like you know i think there's going to be some part of us that hopefully will rebel is a strong word but it's the first one that comes to mind it's like yeah we're gonna push against that and you know maybe it is seeking recommendations from from sharice or sherry or something uh along those lines where we can find new things to kind of open our minds the thing is i don't think the tech has caught up to the very multiple ways that we use platforms right like you might call up a song on spotify just because like it's um, an earworm and it's been stuck in your head and you don't even love it, but you just need to hear it once. Or maybe you need to like demonstrate something to a friend, right? Mm-hmm. And so like, what if those songs you play also feed into what they recommend you, but like you listen to them for totally alternate reasons. Yeah. So so yeah, the, the, the lack of why definitely goes both ways for sure. I had a, I don't know if phase is the right word, but a period where um, I like I only listened to like very hard hitting EDM whenever I worked out and I like worked out every single day, mm-hmm. but I would never listen to that in my spare time ever, just like personally, yeah. but that's all I got. Yeah. And so there for sure are like some privacy concerns around like how much information we should be feeding these platforms in terms of like why we're looking up something or like where we are at what point in time. But yeah, it would definitely improve the experience for sure. There's something Eugene mentioned earlier that I wanted to piggyback on as well to just clarify about the essay is we're not suggesting Eugene and I and the other co-writers have this idea of like ultimate culture, like this is the Mm -hmm, highest mm -hmm, quality mm -hmm. level culture, but just that we think we've fallen 
at we, including ourselves, like in, as individuals, have fallen into a place where we don't think thoroughly about what it is that we are reading or listening or mm. watching. And I can, I, I understand that the essay can be potentially misread as saying that the culture we experience now is of somehow like a lower quality, but I, do, I don't think that that is what we're suggesting. So just wanted to clarify yeah. that. And actually the one takeaway, one big takeaway for me from the essay, there's one quote that I really liked and I'll just read it now. Um, it was without creative accountability, the new work that's generated rarely gets the critique necessary for it to develop into something refined and of higher value. That's the big takeaway for me of thinking more critically about a piece of work actually driving up the value of that work and like contributing to it being being worth more being appreciated more it's it's not a new issue but it's an ongoing issue in music in terms of people asking for instance like what is the point of sites like pitchfork anymore or like what is the point of a lot of other music publications and blogs that sometimes are willing to give a lower rating to an album or try to critique an artist or like what's what's the point if the consumer always wins right like if the consumer will just stream whatever they want to stream buy whatever they want to buy and they like know their own opinions and aren't really looking to someone else's but yeah i think there is this gradual realization that without that the work maybe just won't have enough value because it is essentially going on autopilot like you are just like feeding it to these platforms and they're kind of automatically shooting it to whoever they predict might enjoy it that makes sense yeah like that quote itself what what we've sort of like realized over the course of just being part of this social media generation is like where we spend our time and whether it's set up for critique those things are are so far misaligned in the sense that if i'm following someone on social media like it's generally because i'm interested in their work from i would say a positive positioning right but it's just not set up for us to properly have an opinion on something that's that goes against what this person's sharing or putting out, right? Hmm. So I think that while people, and I guess I should probably add, add an example to that, but you know, if you're following uh, Beyonce or whatever, and she puts out something that you think is trash, it's like, well, you know what? There's millions of people are following her because they're fans of her. You're going to be pushing and trying to go upstream against them, and it's not going to work. And I think that Mm. while we can easily question what is the reason to have uh, a review site, I think increasingly, like if it's positioned correctly, and I guess this is also something that that you have to, if you zoom out, you look at sort of the pyramid of people and it's like, there's always going to be the the latter half, like the lower half of the pyramid is always going to be sort of deferring more to the mainstream. And those people, honestly, they they're probably just still there along for the ride. But I think from, you know, like halfway up towards the top of the pyramid, these are people that are driving culture that are having a role in what's being created. And I think if if you look at those people and their opinions and their insights, I think it's critically important that they have a place where ideas can, can germinate and they can be developed and whatnot. And, you know, to that point, if a music review site is going to, come out and have a point of view on why this is good or bad. I think that it's, it's important because then it uncovers perspectives that otherwise would not be seen. 
right? And I think that's the one thing that I personally find a lot of value. I I don't really look at music from a microscopic perspective. Like, what's the banger that's that's out there right now? It's more like, what are the politics of music? Where are we going? And if I didn't have people that knew much more about music than me putting that out there, then I would think I would be left in the dark. Yeah. I mean, as a total aside, I don't know if you knew this, but Eugene doesn't listen to music. Really? That's a lie. I've started listening <laughs> to music more recently when I need stuff with no lyrics. Uh-huh. Sure. I am very no. glad to hear that. Well, I, I'm glad to hear you're listening to music <laughs> even even a little bit. but <laughs> Okay. So just to give some context for why Eugene talks about music the way he does is, you know, that. I wanted to, <laughs> there you guys go. You were like. I wanted to pick up on what you were saying about offering criticism and yeah, the way, I mean, you're referring back to Sherry's question about platforms too. Like platforms are just set up for really quick responses. Everything is either like an emoji or a like or like a reply, right? Mm, but I mm-hmm. think when you talk about review sites and criticism that is of higher quality, it's something that is created in response, right? Whether that's like an essay in response or an article or maybe even a song or a video, it's you making something that is in response to another thing. And again, from your prep questions, this is the time to bring up Lil Nas X, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because what I think about Lil Nas X is that he did benefit from, all, I'm going to just call it, I think memes are a kind of cultural criticism. Mm, and the mm-hmm. fact that he was able to, without like saying whether Old Town Road is a good song or not, like his work, his work as a musical artist, it like sparked a ton of conversation and generated all of this other material that, that I was describing, right? Like all of these other individuals making their own graphics and riffs and vines and videos, etc. And I think that's really great. Like not every song has that power or requires it, but when that does happen, I think that's a good thing. Mm. I'm so glad you framed it that way. Yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought about, yeah, I guess criticism at its core being a response. And I guess where where it does get into very tricky territory, um, this is something that I've talked about previously on this podcast, but memes are now very much an engineered part of a lot of marketing plans at record labels Yeah, to the point where rappers are manufacturing songs at a rapid fire pace with, with the sole purpose of generating this response. Maybe they have some kind of underlying message, but the point is to stir controversy and to quote unquote go viral if they ever get to that point. So yeah, it is memes are a double edged sword. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. That is true. I'm wondering if my my takedown on the fact that there's a lack of critique is actually misguided because maybe there is a lot of things that are happening that I don't see or I'm not in those world so like i was thinking i think there's actually a sufficient amount of analysis on youtube but i just so happen don't really go there that often and look for mm. it so i don't know that's that's i'm just putting out there. i mean that's very humble of you eugene but <laughs> i think there could still be more critique and i definitely don't think youtube is the place where i find analysis but i mean i could be wrong too i don't spend enough time on youtube i think it's maybe just by virtue of the platform itself has so much other stuff going for it that people that are genuinely structuring thoughts and ideas probably get tuned out algorithmically tuned out yeah either tuned out or uh i was gonna say 
being critics in their own little circles of maybe like a hundred people. Yeah, it's like becoming increasingly fragmented and disconnected. Um, this is a very different situation, but uh, I was watching one of the Firefest documentaries on Netflix and they were just going through how crazy like the influencer marketing campaigns were leading up to the festival. And I realized that I guess I'm not on Instagram that much and I never saw any of those posts for the festival. So like I, I never heard even heard about the festival until the day of when all these photos of like the really bad food and, and the venue were coming up. So like for sure, despite whatever democratization is happening, I think the silos are deepening. Well, I'm thinking about this now. And so Eugene and I are neither of us experts in whatever music is trendy right now, but we are experts in certain things that we consume, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think we would be able to tell if in those specific arenas, there is criticism going on, like you're describing, you know, like we're each part of some kind of a hundred person niche community Mm -hmm. where criticism is happening. And now I'm thinking about, well, maybe that's sufficient Mm -hmm. if that is occurring and everyone is a part of a community like that. Maybe there doesn't need any more to be a global voice of criticism like the New York Times that everyone refers to and in fact that's probably not a good thing right so if so I'm thinking this through we're advocating for individual criticism and small cultures like small communities of criticism that push culture forward Mm. if that's the case do you think we'd be able to see it Mm. like if that is happening everywhere that's such an interesting question. Platforms will see it. Like, I don't, I don't know if we as individuals will see it, but mm. Facebook for sure sees it. Like, sees all of the polarizing stuff that's happening on its platform. This goes back to, yeah, how, like, Spotify is noticing probably, like, a lot of different spheres of different tastes or different trends and how people consume music um, that never interact with each other just, just by nature of Spotify not being a social platform. And that's replicated across almost every other streaming service. So yeah, companies will see it. And I feel like, I guess I can kind of speak to this directly as someone who's using Patreon right now. Like Patreon is a company that will totally see that given that's that's kind of its entire business model is working off of yeah. these smaller, super loyal fan communities around individual people, individual quote unquote creators. That's a really interesting yeah. question though. Yeah. yeah. I think ultimately having smaller communities develop, but with a, sh- a higher barrier to entry. And this is something that piggybacks onto, there's been so much piggybacking on this in this whole conversation, but like it, it mm-hmm. kind of talks about uh, the barrier to entry is the one thing that I think is, is really worth addressing because from a, from a cultural context, the lower barrier to entry means obviously you can develop a critical mass faster, but it also means a lot less to the person that's involved in consuming it. I think Patreon and any sort of community that's developing, the higher the barrier to entry, the more impactful it becomes because people just give a shit more, right? Sure, yeah. That's the one thing that I think is perhaps the the middle ground where on the one hand, you have full openness, people can dip in and out, super democratic. And on the flip side is the super hard gatekeepers, right? Like what is the middle ground that exists there? And are you able to set up a hurdle so that, hey, if you really want to be part of this, 
just do what you need to do to to surpass this one hurdle so i know that you have some skin in the game and that's mm-hmm. the one thing that we believe is probably the most critical part of developing a strong community or subculture or whatever it may be and i think anytime you look at cultures that have consumption as sort of the the underlying mechanism of participation and not, because I, I only really know fashion, right? Like maybe music is share some of the qualities, but I think from a fashion perspective, it's like we've seen what happened with sneaker culture where previously there was a sort of soft gatekeeping where you needed to meet and link up with your dude that ran the store and you need to kind of be friendly. You need to show up every yeah. weekend. Mm-hmm. Now it's to the point where, well, whatever, I'll, I'll just go on StockX or Goat. I'll just buy what I need to buy. I don't need to interact with anybody. I don't need to build any inroads, any community inroads, and I can still consume and be theoretically part of culture. I mean, that's kind of where things all sort of fall apart. Mm. So many thoughts in my head. So yeah, th- there are a lot of parallels in music, not to keep going back to music, but just like one example that is kind we of need to go back to music. right now. We do. <laughs> I want to. I want to know. I need to know need how to. this like all works because I think my 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 fascination with music is like you can look at it right now and see how impactful it is, right? And it's like yeah, at yeah. the very top, you know. I think that at some point you're going to see a shift towards who are the new sort of superstars. I think we've already seen it with music, obviously, mm, but mm-hmm. I think the role you played by musicians and artists and whatnot is critically important. But also, I, I want to hear your perspective on how these things all link up. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you're talking about this like middle ground emerging. I'd just written a piece about this and I use the phrase middle tier, but it's like essentially getting at the same thing. So and this piece was in the context of music distribution platforms. So like there are probably like dozens, if not hundreds of different distribution platforms that as an artist, you can choose from to distribute your music to Spotify, Apple, Amazon, title to like whatever other services around the world and then get paid through that distributor as well and there are a lot of distribution companies that i think up until even just like two or three years ago were all trying to offer the same thing which is a super long tail one size fits all distribution for any artist maybe you only made like one song in your life and you're only a hobbyist and you don't want to have a career as a musician that's fine you can still pay a flat fee to upload your music through this distributor and yeah so there's just all these different companies trying to offer the same thing there's no differentiation and then these companies realize that like unless you achieve massive massive scale that's actually like a really expensive operation to run and it's not really sustainable and so there are now more companies that are catering to the quote-unquote middle tier of artists who are more established and maybe have teams around them that need more like hands-on high quality service and there is a much higher barrier to entry and that you have to apply and they're like they tend to be a lot more selective and so there's just one distribution company that i wrote about called stem that switched from long tail to much more selective higher barrier distribution services and essentially announced without that much forewarning that they were going to boot off most of like the long tail artists off of their platform and now only start serving a smaller group of artists that presumably was like a better business decision for them to serve. And yeah, it wasn't quite, it wasn't that well received at all by the artist community, but just that I'm just noticing that more as a pure like business trend of a lot of companies realizing, Oh, actually like 
even for yeah companies that are handling this music it might be more sound commercially to raise the barrier a little bit and only focus on a handful of artists if that makes sense yeah yeah well what's interesting about both what eugene and you have been talking about is that this situation has a lot of pros right like for STEM and the artists that they commit to, like that's a great relationship and their relationship is better because they're dedicated to each other. For sure. And also for Patreon and both for the people who are on Patreon and then the Patreon followers, I don't know what the right word is. That's a good relationship as well because they both get more out of it. But the resulting situation is everyone, the general public who is just dabbling in something gets what is the right word to use that would be democratic here? Because I want to say left out, but it's not really left out. It's like they have to make a decision, essentially. Like hmm. there's not really they, a way they for- meaning the general public. Yeah, the or, general public. Mm. Like the STEM artist that isn't making a lot of music or is a hobbyist, like can't afford, right, to go through that gate. And also the person who is kind of interested in what Sherry is doing, but not interested enough to support on Patreon. Like mm, where does that right. person go? Right. Or is it is it is it would you two say that like the situation has been too beneficial to those people? And so we must move towards mm. like some kind of middle gate. That is a really interesting way to put it. Yeah, I think I think it is a good thing that I guess the the segmentation is clear and like the specific value is clear such that for instance as an artist, you kind of have a much clearer direction of where to go based on what you want to do with with, with your career or your life. Mm-hmm. Same same thing with Patreon for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that segmentation is actually not all that bad. I like I said there there's no there's no simple clean easy answer because you obviously want to provide opportunities for people to potentially grow into being that sort of middle tier artist, right? And I think there will always there will always be that sort of opportunity. Right. It's just whether or not you want to take it to the next level. And this is the one thing I see a lot is that people think they want to be this or that, or they want to be part of this world, but they don't actually want to put in the work or effort. And I think those people in themselves, like if it's just a hobby, that's fine. Just let it be a hobby, but don't, don't get in the way of other people that are taking this very seriously. Does that make yeah, sense? And yeah. then maybe that's just being an asshole about it. But I think that ultimately you're you're kind of sucking oxygen away and attention away from people that are putting in effort in the studio or in in um, developing their craft so that they can be uh, the best or they can level up. And I think having that sort of break off point, and I was this is something that I never brought up during the Spotify thing, but like having you know this area where things that are in the process of growing and emerging, maybe there's a place for that to exist as well. Like, I think that if STEM was to revisit what long tail looks like, why don't you just tax them higher? And I, that's probably sounds bad, but it's like, you know, if you're a hobbyist, Ta- tax the, like the like, hobbyist segment. Yeah, higher. Cause ultimately that's so this, okay. th- that's a way of looking at it. And like, if that, I don't know how the, their business model works, but if it's like if uploading a track is this much, and obviously I would think it's not massive. It's not like, you know, thousands of dollars, like, Hey, it's $5 for this track. If you're in this tier, cause you're doing, you know, this many tracks a month, but you're a hobbyist and it's 15 bucks. Like that's what I'm trying to get at. Cause it's not that you are preventing them from, from playing, but it's like their personal interest and what they value from creating the work is different from the person making, uh, trying to make a living off of it. Mm. That is such, I wonder, 
trying to think of like how the music industry would react to that because for sure it's like i feel like most businesses are structured in the opposite way or like so the way that um some other distributors are i guess structured is that they'll have like the 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 cheapest tier is the hobbyist tier and then yeah they'll yeah they'll, like they'll start charging like a higher percentage of revenue for more established artists in exchange for more hands-on services this is something eugene and i have talked about actually quite frequently is that if you contribute to a community if you make something that brings positive benefit to everyone then you should be rewarded for doing that Mm, that's so interesting yeah so in this case like if you're a if you're a musician who has like really good output gets great reception then you should be rewarded in some way whether that's financially or another way that's not cash for that kind of work for your creative Mm. input actually yeah i'm very glad you said that because traditional record deals are basically structured the opposite way historically a lot of artists they see like the end game as getting signed to a major label or even to an indie label but inherent in getting signed is maybe you're getting rewarded in more revenue but you're not getting rewarded in more equity at all you're getting rewarded in like giving up the majority of your equity to uh, a record label and like giving away the majority of your the master recording copyright ownership wow that is that is a really interesting kind of alternative universe where if i could add one thing Mm -hmm. yeah to that thing it's like well, obviously, as STEM, they they want people to level up and enter the middle tier. So imagine, you know, for that higher cost of being able to use their service, they're also providing uh, guides or some sort of way to educate and or push this artist from the bottom bracket and the most expensive bracket to the next one. And it's almost like a quasi-incubator in a way. Yes, and I think that, sure. that to me is the way that you could also look at it and justify the higher cost. Like, we're we're not against you rising up, but like, and, but we'll also provide you some guidelines or tools to get you there. So then it feels as though it's mm. not necessarily putting a a high barrier to it. It's also, hey, you know what? The barrier exists for this reason. You know, we're also hoping that you can kind of rise up and you can make a career out of this, or you can make something beyond what you're doing right now. Whether if they have those aspirations or not is up to them, but at least provide that anyways yeah for sure the last question that i had in mind before the final segment i do want to talk a little bit more about Macon and about like how you see this in relation to media generally and i also want to bring up my own experience running a newsletter and a podcast and monetizing that through through patreon because i don't think I've had any, any negative experience with this, but it is like a constant pressure on me in terms of volume, seeing all these other media companies, like other publications writing about music, for instance, like writing about the music industry, I guess they're positioning themselves as news publications. And so they're publishing like dozens of articles a day, their strength and their position is all about volume. Whereas the value that I feel like Macon I don't want to speak for Macon, but this is kind of like my sense that it is much more about like more in-depth criticism, quality over quantity, not feeling a pressure to publish, you know, something every single day. And for me, like a good week for me is publishing two articles a week. Like that is like very high volume for me. I like need a lot more time to, yeah, like to do research. Really high volume for an individual. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, especially because I like have a certain threshold for the number of like interviews I need to do or research I would like to do per article. Um, yeah, so I think so far it's been it's been going well and it's and it's growing at a good pace. But there is always this perceived pressure that I need to like just p- keep pushing out of like oh I gotta create more or I gotta like lean more towards volume in order, in order to compete with these publications when like maybe I'm not even competing with them at all maybe I'm just like kind yeah. of building something separate yeah, yeah. If, if I could feel that question first I think that there's several sort of trends that are emerging uh, first and foremost moving beyond the news cycle obviously your your product will be much more analytical and critical than something that hey what new song dropped or right, there's this right. been this lawsuit or whatever I think the second side of it too is that by virtue of you choosing a patreon model allows you to actually rethink your your cadence and how much content you put out because the people will continue to support you if they have an emotional connection to what you put out and i think mm-hmm, emotional mm-hmm. connections themselves are not necessarily defined by quantity and to use examples like there's newsletters i subscribe to and i pay t- and i pay you know 10 bucks a month and you know part of it is out of sort of that one nugget he might put out five pieces a week and like honestly four of them could be trash one of them could be really good and that kind of continues my participation with newsletter same thing with netflix like netflix doesn't only more recently have they started to unveil how many people are are tuning in right but they don't really need to because as long as you're not churning and you're not canceling it doesn't really matter right and Mm. i think from your perspective Mm. the other trend that is emerging this is probably the one i should have led with was like this idea of finishable content and the the sort of psychological feeling of never being caught up. I think we're trying to move past that, mm, right? Mm, and you want to yeah. and look at Instagram too. Like they've integrated it where oh you're all caught up. I think by virtue of me knowing I can follow what you're doing in one week's time and I can get value, uh, I can get your personality. Which you know I think in part as a as a solo creator versus being in a media company that's what you're afforded you're able to sell personality all that stuff i think that's critical and then just the opportunity for you to control how often you put stuff up because this is the one thing we never talked about but you had brought up was this idea of like infinite culture and i I can understand Mm -hmm. the quote that was in the creator's paradigm is thinking about how to return to an infinite cultural mindset. And I can see how this could be confusing because infinite cultural in the sense of like creating infinite culture, it's more along the lines of the timeline of culture being infinite and rather looking at it from a generational perspective. So it's like mm, mm-hmm. what you're doing right now with, with everything, whether it's a podcast or newsletter, it's thinking about it from the context of, can I, can I put something in the ground? Can I create a foundation that in itself can actually last far beyond my time and i think that's what infinite culture Mm. is is like it's not defined by this moment in time it's like creating something that can last for forever and i think that's what culture needs to achieve it should build in its own checks and balances where you know even when the next generation comes in they understand sufficiently what this culture is about what it wants to represent and how we get there i think the intangible elements of culture need to be somewhat understood and it's hard because it's more cerebral like what does the culture represent and then once you have that you can start building that out and they can kind of model out far into the future i can speak specifically about making a little bit since you did ask and since eugene sidestepped (laughs) Um, at 
making we've always been and it's like sometimes this has been to our disadvantage like to be quite honest but we've always been more interested in publishing something that we really care about that we think is not something that is being said rather than to push something out for the sake of publishing yeah like we would we've always just not felt like we shouldn't we shouldn't publish just so we make a quota right and we we address that as well in the essay that when you set specific targets and you accelerate your timeline in which you do something then the output is necessarily of less interest to yourself as a creator or done Mm. to a degree that you're not happy with and Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you spend forever perfecting something but I think we try to maintain a standard that isn't rushed by everything else that is out there and when I say it's to our disadvantage it's because you know as you you have observed a lot of the media landscape is still caught up in this idea of publishing 20 30 things a day as much as possible probably across channels it's more than that if you counted every individual social media post and things that's that's very true website right Mm -hmm. um but we've we go for the play that our audience understands you know like Eugene said that they want content that they can finish the content they can rely on on every piece on everything that we put out that would be of a certain high degree of standard rather than like one in five or like one in ten right yeah and I think it's a different kind of pressure actually it's a different kind of pressure because when you set yourself a goal of two a week and you can achieve that, that actually is also a really good feeling. And I wouldn't like discourage the person who sets out to try and do that either. Because that will teach you something as a creator that you wouldn't maybe learn by trying to perfect a piece and you only wind up with one piece a month. Yeah. Actually Mm -hmm. starting out, it's probably better to try to push yourself for a volume of making in order to understand like, how you work and like what kind of work you do best Mm -hmm. yeah and um yeah just like as a last point this is eugene to something that you just said about the actual meaning behind infinite culture and thinking more generationally and more long term um that totally resonates with me this is one very hard to quantify and hard to predict goal that i have for my pieces is for as many pieces as possible to be something that people would want to read still in five years time. Yeah. Having, having the Patreon model as opposed to like an ad model or something allows me to, to think with that mindset. And I, I've like kind of learned while doing that, that is very much not the norm or like people are definitely thinking they're not thinking, is this going to be read in five years? They're thinking, is this going to be read or clicked on a certain number of times by the end of this quarter? So we can meet this goal that we have. Um, yeah, it's just it's just fundamentally different. Yeah, I was gonna say that what you're creating right now is also important because it's documentation of culture and where we're at currently as an industry as well, right? Like the goal is hopefully people can look back and be like, hey, this is in many ways a reflection mm-hmm. of the the times. But I think that that's the one thing is fundamentally shifting your business model or what allows you to support this endeavor i think it's don't sort of fly in the face of that and you know this is this is well it's kind of hard because like you've kind of put it out there and like hey the expectation is supporting me getting this much a month but back to the infinite culture thing it's that what happens if you are currently on two a week and suddenly it becomes overbearing or you realize hey i don't i'm not dedicating enough time 
to each piece and I don't feel proud of what I'm putting out there. Like I think in, in theory, that's, that's in some ways a burnout type, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, scenario that's building up. And once you address that and you re- recognize that you, this is kind of something that you want to do forever, not for a definitive period of time and I'm going to retire or whatever. It's like, I think it significantly shifts your perspective around it. And, you know, for us, we, this is to kind of bring it back to Macon previously, our cadence was a lot higher in terms of long form stories. And then we realized, you know what, there's certain things that we're missing out on in terms of commenting on culture or providing new insights that we in general want to be able to speak about. And that means you know, what, what's happening in the news today? How can we kind of weave a thread through all the news happening and what it means to you? And those are things we couldn't do because we're so focused on putting out all this long form content. So mm. ultimately, mm. Mm-hmm. just because it took you a long time or because you're putting that much out doesn't necessarily mean the value increases. And I think this is the big trap behind journalists too, is that we, we, we pen these, you know, 5,000, 10,000 word pieces and the general public generally doesn't really care. I'm just, you know, it's just generalizing. Like it's more for fellow journalists to pat each other yeah, on the back. Yeah. And length and value are are two things that are need to be addressed because they're not always synonymous. They don't always equate to one another. Mm. So mm. I think just keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there are things in that that I disagree with, but I'm going to just let it go. Well, you can't you can't bring oh, up that no. point and not disagree and not <laughs> well, I mean, and not tell me I why. If I disagree with you, then we'll never end this podcast. Um, <laughs> no, you're right that length and value are not equivalent to each other, but I think that there are subjects that require five thousand to ten thousand words. Of course, and mm-hmm. those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just I, of course you would then agree with me. You can't you can't include every caveat, right? But I just want to say that yeah. some things do need mm. that kind of attention and dedication. Absolutely, yeah. From my perspective, anyone that's consuming any type of content that's more on the educational front beyond entertainment is probably looking for context and meaning. And sometimes context and meaning could be very short, could be very long. Yes. But I think that's at the very top that you're trying to hit, and then anything below. And in terms of medium, it and is it should what it like is. serve that goal of like providing context. And yeah. yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, awesome. In the interest of time, for the last ten minutes or so, I'd love for us to talk about recent news and music or entertainment that we think is super interesting or over or underrated. Um, I don't know if either of you want to start first. I'll start. Sharice, you go first. Yeah, mine's fun. <laughs> it is. Mine's the fun one. So Taylor Swift recently released a song called You Need to Calm Down, plus a music video in conjunction with that. The song is really short, kind of catchy, kind of average. It's like three minute, 30 seconds. The interesting thing is that the music video is like chock full of every LGBTQIA plus celeb that you could imagine. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that there's a lot of controversy slash conversation, not all of it's controversial, kicked up in relation to this video. Like, should Taylor Swift have released this during Pride Month? And what does that mean? Right? Mm. Like, what does her being such an outspoken ally do or doesn't do? And does it have a negative impact? Mm. So what I think is that 
the in terms of overrated underrated the controversy is the appropriate level of rated right like i think it's merited the taylor swift video is i would say actually overrated i think her play in general like her play with the video and the song during pride month is overrated and my reason for this is because i while i'm not queer myself so i I fully understand that this is another straight woman saying this um i think the month should be dedicated to people who identify as lgbtqia plus to offer their work and i think Mm. like taylor could be an ally at any other point of the year Mm -hmm. and still do a lot of good and that by coming out in this month and then being number one trending on youtube for like days now um takes away from other people who put out content this month for pride that's my take i think that's a totally sound take and there are two things that come to mind so one taylor swift certainly has no pun intended a reputation for commercializing her brand and the way that the public perceives her i mean that was the whole point of her previous album um of a lot of her previous music videos which also garnered a lot of controversy and she's like uh certainly used to that yeah this video also falls in line with a trend of her gradually becoming more outspoken politically like the fact that she endorsed two democratic candidates in uh, tennessee despite there being a lot of speculation about her having like a really big republican or right-wing fan base um she's like really leaning into that now But yeah, I agree that this video or just like this timing is very much an instance of her maximizing how much her brand can like be commercialized. Because like, yeah, it is her song at the end of the day. Yes, there are people in this video who are featured, but like she's the one making money from the YouTube streams and like she's the one who owns her song uh, and she's the one who's getting all those royalties, right? Like, yeah, like all that money is flowing to her and like maybe she'll give some of that back to related causes i hope so but yeah it's definitely like her at the center of attention but there's no promise yeah yeah um great eugene do you want to go ahead and share yours the news piece i want to talk about is about how the billboard charts determines its ranking system and how bundling product bundling fits in with that and i would say that in general the product bundling is probably the tip of the iceberg for me it's more about how does one bring the world of music into an offline world. And I say that not that music doesn't Mm. exist offline. It's more about the sort of identity creation that comes with music. So I think that, you know, ultimately now that ever since we've gone digital, the album cover, even book covers themselves have lost a little bit of their strength and power. So I'm always thinking, what is the the graphic design or visual element of music that can be portrayed Mm. offline? I think that's where merchandise and product comes into play. And that to me is is probably the part that it's hard to say if it's oh, at what part it's rated. I think it's a little bit underrated, but I think at some point it's going to become just absolutely massive by virtue of the role that music artists play in, in influencing and determining uh, popular culture. And I say that because I think some of the other realms have been, have lost a little bit of steam. And I think, you know, one of the big ones is, sports stars because sports stars themselves 
I think in 10, 15 years time, as we start moving away from traditional sports into esports, I think you're going to see that shift where suddenly that world of competition will have competition in the sense of sports, I should say, it's going to change drastically. So what used to be an industry, merchandise, and I think merchandise and fashion are probably the two that go uh, a little bit more hand in hand versus any other category. I think what's interesting is that since much of the play now is about distribution and who owns the distribution, it's essentially music artists. I think that they're going to be well suited to be incredibly impactful going forward because audience itself is the most important thing. And it's kind of like how you monetize them becomes the new sort of game you play. Is it through music? Is it through merchandise? Is it through, is it through events? Uh, I'm making this up, but like, let's say hypothetically at some point, a music artist who really believes in healthcare launches their own insurance company. I don't know. Like those are things that if you have a captivative audience, like that's how you're kind of pushing them down your funnel. So that to me is kind of the interesting thing that's going to exist. And uh, I was thinking about how we personally create identity around music and the closest thing I can think of in terms of consumption, seeing how consumption and identity are so closely tied today is that people will share what they're listening to on Spotify and their Instagram, for example. But unless it's like a really old, iconic album, most of your context is derived from the actual words, like the, what artist is and what song. I don't know how powerful. Maybe you guys can push back and say, actually, album art is making a comeback. But I think that if that isn't as resonant as it once was, then what are other ways? It's the T-shirt. It's the sneakers. It's all that stuff that falls within the fashion mm-hmm. sort of umbrella that allows people to kind of create that offline online bridge and connection. Mm. Yeah. I think it's definitely all aspects of fashion. Uh, merch is definitely a growing aspect of any artist's kind of business model. Um, one thing that uh, this is not the piece of news I was planning on discussing, but is related to the one that you are talking about. I just saw that the Jonas brothers have their own vinyl membership club now and oh, you can sign what? up. <laughs> it's really weird it's really weird so it's i think there are like two tiers um there's one that i think it's just a one-off purchase actually but it's like 399 dollars that you get access to like a ton of different it's super super expensive but what you get in return is like these super limited run exclusive custom designed colored vinyl records of like their entire catalog um one unreleased album that I think was supposed to come out in 2013, but they like broke up around that time. And that's why it never came out. So like, there's a really, I, I just thought of that when um, Eugene, you were talking about like identity. Cause I feel like the Jonas Brothers have been around for a while. The fan base of Jonas Brothers 1.0 are of a certain age now, certain purchasing power. And like, maybe I guess the assumption of that band now is that those fans are going to try to latch onto something physical and like yeah. really visually engaging that will like bring them back to their identity to, to that, I at mean, least that stage. Yeah. Speaking of Jonas Brothers, weird that I also know this, they have the biggest debut week of the year for their new album, Happiness Begins. Oh, no way. Which in a contradiction to Eugene's news, they made 357,000 pure album sales out mm. of 414,000. So pretty good. That is actually um, super is, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I just realized the Jonas Brothers like this is this is me dating myself for whatever reason. 
I kept thinking of Hanson. But then I realized Jonas and Hanson are two different people. This is me embarrassing myself on, on air, but like, yeah, just throwing that out there. No, I love it. This is great. Wait, um, hope this isn't a dumb question. Who Who is Hanson? Oh, you just made it so much better, Sherry. Unfortunately, yeah. I do know who Hanson is. So Hanson's like the OG oh, no. brother group. Oh, really? They do that song, yeah. Mbop. Oh. Okay, so you're gonna you're okay. gonna finish this podcast, and then you're gonna go listen to Hanson. Sounds good. Sounds the hell good. of jokes. Okay, they started in '92. Um. So. Oh, oh wow. Okay. So so actually, OG. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, <laughs> speaking of boy groups, boy bands, uh, the piece of news that I had in mind is around K-pop, and it's the news that the founder of YG Entertainment he stepped down from his position at the company in part because YG is one of a handful of. K-pop entertainment companies that have been facing a lot of really high-profile, mostly sexual-related scandals involving members of their boy groups, like being involved mm. in like sexting group chats or like going to strip clubs, all of which like yeah, are super sensitive and taboo, especially in the K-pop community. And at least in like Korea and Asia, I think it's like not underrated in that it is like causing a lot of buzz, but just on a higher level, I think what's super underrated for k-pop is the impact that talent has on the financial performance of the companies that they're signed to so as a comparison so oh yeah over the last couple of years there have been a lot of artists signed to major labels who have kind of been exposed as part of the wider me too movement for instance like a lot of people speaking out with allegations against those artists for the most part those labels aren't suffering financially because of that it's like they kind of like kick out the artist but they're still like raking in millions of dollars from streaming in general, in part because they have like a really wide roster. But um, YG Entertainment, I know SM Entertainment is also, they're both publicly traded companies as well in Korea. And I think when each of those scandals are first announced, the stock prices of those companies went down, it must have been like 30%. And I think they like rebounded a little bit, but that just like kept happening with each of these scandals. And so, like, you probably had people losing, like, substantial amounts of money just because of this one mistake that um, this artist made in this company that manages, like, you know, a much, like record labels in the U.S., like, a, a much wider range of artists. But it's al- it's almost like athletes and sports teams. Like, the, 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 the performance of the company is so mm-hmm. reliant on the talent such that, like, one misstep can... Um, essentially put them in, in the direction of financial decline. So I just thought that was, yeah, that, that's just a really interesting dynamic that I think played a big part in this founder stepping down from YG. I'm curious as to yeah. what's bigger here. You think the artist, in the context of K-pop anyways, less so North American music, but do you really do you think that the talent is actually more critical than the company itself? Because I would almost argue the opposite, where I think talent is important, but by virtue of them sort of turnkey uh, creating stars just by putting them through K-pop school, whatever you want to call it. I think that the power actually resides more in the, in the music label and that, you know, it, it's almost interchangeable in the sense that they can basically bring up people like, let's say I'm only speculating, but let's say that the overall sort of playbook is 
create every so every so often uh, a band with multiple members and see of those five or eight members who is the most popular and then break them off into a solo career. So then if they continue doing that, then it becomes uh, to them actually a little bit more like they can continue to exist and build businesses through that model. And I mean, obviously it, it kind of downplays the importance of the human capital, but it does make it for a more sound business. Mm. Like, does that, would that work in the U S or no? Mm. So I would argue that's kind of happened with one direction and fifth harmony already. So like multiple members of one direction are not like Harry Styles are doing, having solo careers, uh, multiple members of, uh, Fifth Harmony, like uh, Camilla Cabello, um, also having successful solo careers. I think the label, I think that's like very deliberate on the part of the label. Um, and I think, I think from my impression, like the artist is also like on board, at least like someone like, like um, Camille is also on board. But uh, yeah, I think that, that that's already happening. It just isn't maybe uh, under as regimented of a machine as like the, the K-pop industry is just because the two industries just like work really differently in terms of how they train artists. But yeah, I think, I think that's already happening. I think what's interesting to me about this news. So the article that we're referring to was from billboard and there's like a little note at the end that also says Yang's younger brother, Yang Min Suk also reportedly stepped down from his role as CEO mm of YG Entertainment. Mm. This is pretty interesting to me, if this is true, right? Because it kind of signals to me that there's like actual fundamental changes going on in the company, that something internal really is going to flip over. So that would be interesting to watch. And then even if they don't change, I I mean, I'm not super knowledgeable about the Korean music scene, but YG is pretty big, right? (laughs) as far as entertainment groups go. So I wonder if them failing leaves room for smaller companies to step Mm. up. I would, yeah, I would definitely like to see that. I would definitely like there to be, uh, well, it's okay. This is a trend that I'm noticing with a lot of um, international markets that are gaining ground among at least like listeners in the U S. So whether it's quote unquote Latin music and the fact that it's like basically just reggaeton, that's, like gaining traction under the umbrella of Latin music or whether it's basically only K-pop gaining traction under the label of Korean music. Yeah. I would very much like to see all of that diversify. Like for sure, there's so much more going on um, in Korea, like of all types of genres that I would like to see gain more global recognition. And I think like as streaming continues to grow, that's kind of like setting the foundation for that, hopefully. Um, But yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. To close off, I don't know if either of you have anything, uh, any last thoughts you'd want to share or if there's anything going on with Macon that you want to promote or talk about. Oh, interesting. We totally did not um, compare notes it's, on that. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is the part where we're really bad at, but we should do more. That's okay. And that's the <laughs> self-promotion part. You, 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 have, you have a really good podcast. <laughs> I guess yeah. I, can, I can promote that. Making it up. Yeah, um, making it up. Everyone should listen to it and subscribe. Look it up. Yeah, no, I, I think overall, thanks for the opportunity. Yes. It was, it's for me, I was a little, when, when you sent over the prep questions, I was getting nervous. I'm like, shit, I don't really know that much about music from like a micro perspective. And I can only really parlay other experiences. But then I realized, I think 
at its fundamental core, a lot of creative industries are going through the same challenges, whether absolutely, it's art, absolutely. music, yeah. fashion, media. So I think it's, it's interesting because these industries would probably benefit from some sort of cross industry collaboration and or figuring out what works and what doesn't work and hopefully providing knowledge and context and like, Hey, this is how we addressed it. And then maybe you can think about that as yes. well. Um, so I think, I, I mean, I, I really appreciate the opportunity and, and you reaching out. And I guess for anyone that's doing anything out there, that element of marketing is so critical that I find nowadays, it's almost as though you can put something out, but if you're not spending almost an equivalent amount of time marketing, it's, it's almost useless in a mm, way, because I mm-hmm. think that the pipes are so clogged right now in terms of distribution that, you know, to back to your point of putting out two pieces a week, like what happens you put out one piece and the amount of time you would have spent doing a second piece in the early stages, you're actually just marketing yourself. Mm, like mm-hmm. Maybe that's a way of looking at it because so much stuff now is created, but unseen as well. And I think that's also part of the sort of holistic perspective you need to take about being a creator today. On that note about marketing, I can do a proper plug. I have it in me. Mm-hmm. If you want to find <laughs> out more about Macon, you should visit our website, Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Macon as well. We send out a weekly newsletter that you can subscribe to. And as Sherry mentioned, we also do a weekly culture news podcast called Making It Up, where Eugene and I talk um, even more shit to each other than we did on this one. That was great. Thank you for sharing all that. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you both so much again. This is super fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Thank you all so much for listening to episode eight of the Water and Music podcast. If you like what you heard, I would really appreciate a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts, a follow on Spotify, and or any other kind of action or show of support on the podcast listening platform of your choice. If you're interested in following even more of these kinds of conversations and investigations on music and tech, I write a bi-weekly email newsletter of the same name, Water and Music, which you can subscribe to by visiting the short link bit.ly slash water and music that's b-i-t dot l-y slash water and music all spelled out and all in lowercase letters thanks so much to young skirt for providing the instrumental music that you're hearing right now again to eugene and sharice for being awesome guests on this episode and to all of you for getting to this point in the episode and listening till next time